0: All right. So we've just had a fascinating conversation with Arthur Brooks. Arthur is the William Henry Bloomberg Professor of the Practice of Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School and Professor of Management Practice at the Harvard Business School. And before joining Harvard in 2019, he served for 10 years as president of the Washington, D.C.-based American Enterprise Institute, one of the world's leading think tanks. He's the author of 12 books, including number one New York Times bestseller from Strength to Strength, which you can see behind me here and national bestsellers love your enemies and the conservative heart and our book uh, our conversation today focuses on from strength to strength and some of arthur's wider research based on that arthur is a columnist for the atlantic host of the podcast how to build a happy life and subject to the 2019 documentary film the pursuit which variety named as one of the best documentaries on netflix in 2019 and prior to his work in academia and public policy Brooks spent 12 years as a professional French hornist in the United States and Spain. So he's had a really varied, um, mixed life going from, you know, very several very interesting different careers, and we talk about that at the start of our interview. So today, uh, Nick is traveling, and so Matt, Professor Matthew Lee from the Human Flourish Bureau at Harvard, one of our sponsors, very kindly stepped in to, to join me for this interview today. And Matt, what did you most enjoy about our conversation today?
1: Well, thanks, John. I'm so glad to be here, and it was... Um a remarkable conversation that sparked so many thoughts. Uh, certainly his emphasis on love um, and the catchphrase that you you shared from the book um, is, is right at the top. And I just couldn't help but think, um, you know, the book, is, the latest book is pitched for people in the second half of life, but really folks need to read that very early. It, it should be in um, high schools maybe yeah. perhaps even middle schools um, because you, you sort of cultivate these habits um, in life that are um, you know harmful later on <laughs> because it draws you away from the essence of flourishing and so um, i gathered that his next book will address younger people but even even this one i think has lessons which we should share earlier and more consistent, consistently throughout the, not just the education process, but family and religious community socialization. So there's so much there to unpack. I'm sure the listeners will enjoy the full conversation, but um, don't trade love for anything.
0: Yes, and that was his—that was his response to our flourishing question. Yeah, what was the one? was the one bit of practical advice you'd give to listeners? His was that love is the most important thing in life, and, and we shouldn't be trading it off for things that really don't bring us, ultimately, bring us happiness. You know, things like material success. So, this is our discussion today on Flourish FM with Professor Arthur C. Brooks. We focus on happiness, wisdom, love, relationships. Religion and spirituality, and a belief in something higher, and how that can connect with our flourishing, and when and why more why do we connect all of these themes up with human flourishing more broadly. I really hope you enjoy it. Thanks for joining us today on Flourish FM. Hi, Jens, Arthur, Professor Brooks, Hi. how are you? Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Where are you? Where are you guys? I'm currently in Athens. Uh, well, no, Piraeus in Greece. Nice. And you, I believe, are in Barcelona. Is that right? No, I'm not in Barcelona. I'm in—I mean, I often
2: am this time of year. But today, I'm in Boston, my my regular home. Oh, wow! Not not, wow. My, not my not my side home. How, how about you, Matthew?
1: Well, I'm today. I'm starting my new position at Baylor University. You're in Waco, <laughs> Texas. Yeah, man. In Waco, Texas. So I, you know, I'm staying on at the Human Flourishing Program uh, in a part-time role, but um, professor of the social sciences and humanities here at, Baco, uh, at, at Waco, working with Byron Johnson and the Institute
0: for Studies of Religion. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we're deep, deeply honoured to be interviewing you for this podcast. Dr. Nick Holton sends his apologies. He's travelling today. Uh, Matt has very kindly stepped in to, to co-interview you with me. Um, Matt is uh, among the sponsors of this podcast, uh, the Human Flourish Program at Harvard and um, the Department of Education, at Oxford, our other co-sponsor, Dave Professor David Johnson there. So thank you so much. We're really excited about this conversation.
1: Yeah, and I, I should say Arthur, I've been using as my motto, a phrase that you wrote in The Atlantic a few years ago, don't trade love for anything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. when, whenever right. I want to uh, sum up human flourishing, if I have to give it a sentence, I I try to use that one.
2: <laughs> that's good, that's good. I'm, I'm glad I'm glad that was sticky, good to know.
0: Arthur, we're thrilled to have you on our show and excited to dig into the many insights you tease out in your most recent book, From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. Displayed on the shelf behind me amidst many books written in Greek, because I'm currently in Greece, but it's not because I, unfortunately, I, I don't read Greek. But I wish I did. Um, now, it occurred to me in your life that your life seems to have been a case study in jumping from strength to strength. So I'd love to start with a bit of your background and how, or, or maybe why, a professional French hornist turns into an economist, then a college professor, then a think tank president, and now a best author, and if you don't mind the term, happiness expert. <laughs>
2: uh yeah, well th- you know thanks for that and I appreciate it what a lovely thing to be on the show talking about what we all care about which is how to lift people up and bring them together and congratulations on the success of this uh, this new show um I've had a weird journey it's true and and a, a a let's just say it's non-linear. And, and the truth is that a lot of people listening to us have this, have something similar. Uh, we have a tendency in our society to say that the right kind of career, the right kind of life path is one where everything builds on everything else and things go more or less in a pattern of of higher and higher degrees of success and prosperity. And that's not the way an average life works. Um, There's a lot of research on this, that the the linear career path, for example, is actually a small percentage of people. More people are what we would call spirals. And spirals are people who go from challenge to challenge, that sometimes they'll go backwards in money because they want to learn something else. And The only way that things build on each other is that your interests and your skills are actually used in, in one area or another. And that's kind of how my life has gone. I started off as a classical musician. Um, I left college at 19. I did not graduate. As a matter of fact, I didn't even get through in one entire year of college before, you know, it's a debate, you know, dropped out or kicked out, you know, there's splitting hairs at this point. And I, uh, I went on the road as a classical musician and spent the next 10 years not going to college, but, but playing professionally, including a bunch of years in the orchestra in Barcelona. And then in my late 20s, went back to college by correspondence because I was just interested in learning more. And I kind of figured that sooner or later that it would be a good idea for me to have some studies. And I got fascinated, actually obsessed with this social science stuff where you could could use experiments and numbers and data sets to actually understand human behavior. And so I, I got more interested and I did a degree and then another degree at night. And finally, I was just... It seemed sort of inevitable. I got vacuumed out of the music business and and went and got my PhD as a social scientist. And, and from there, you know, finished and became a college professor for a decade and then took over a big think tank in Washington, D.C. that specialized in public policy, which was my area, for a decade. And at the end of that, we're through the process of discernment, thought, well, all right, buddy, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? And I said, I'm going to lift people up and bring them together, kind of like what you're doing with the Flourish podcast. And I'm going to do it using in the spirit of love and happiness using my ideas and my intellect and that meant writing and speaking and teaching and that's what i plan to do for the rest of my life until the wind blows me someplace else <laughs>
0: <laughs> and the research i take it for from strength to strength has influenced your career change from being ceo of think tank to uh returning to academia if you like or you know, focusing on that is that, is that correct
2: yeah. So From Strength to Strength this is a brand new book that came out in, in February about how people can plan out or they can understand their life and phases and, and, and play to their own natural strengths, their own natural cognitive and emotional strengths as they get older. A lot of people think they're getting weaker because their skills are in decline. But what's happening is that certain skills decline while others are increasing. And you need to understand that so you can walk from one strength to another. That's the point of that book. I didn't write it as a book. I wrote it as a not even as research, but more as me-search. I started the, the research eight years ago, and I intended it to plan out the back half of my life. Mm-hmm. And you know, my wife found the research in a folder and kind of looked at my notes and said, you gotta write this up, so I sent it to my agent. And sure enough, it turns out that a lot of people were concerned about the same thing. So
0: that's kind of how that came about, but it's been a long time in the works. Awesome, so I'd love to dig into some of its core themes. And much of this, much of the content of From Strength to Strength, directly connects to human flourishing. Now, at the end of the book, you write that moving from strength to strength in life requires learning a new set of life skills. And you summarize the book in these beautiful seven words, which you say encapsulate all the lessons you've learned and now strive to live. Those yeah. seven words are: use things, love people, worship the divine. So, could you elaborate on these seven words to bring out how some of the book's core themes connect up with human flourishing?
2: Yeah. As people proceed through life, they're, they're, they're tossed about in a culture and in, in, in an economy that has a certain set of imperatives that are kind of imposed on us. And I'm not one of these anti-capitalist guys. On the contrary, I'm a huge enthusiast for the free enterprise system, but but only in bounds of human morality. And, and, and the cosmic understanding of human brotherhood and sisterhood because you know, it, if you don't have human morality, no market system, no economic system is gonna do any good for you. It's just gonna, it's just gonna turn you into a, a classic unhappy materialist. And, and the truth is that there's a formula the world gives us uh, that we're you know, given and that really drives us usually for the first half of our lives that becomes a source of frustration and alienation and anger and bitterness as we get older. And that formula is use people love things and worship yourself. That's basically what it is. You know, things are out there. If you get this thing, man, oh, hey, John, if you get that car, you're gonna really enjoy it for the rest of your life. If you get that house and in, in whatever at the beach, you're gonna think that's so wonderful. It's gonna be great if you have these relationships, if you have this fame, if you have this professional success, it's gonna be the be all and end all. The new car smell will last forever. It's wrong. And, and that says basically love things because they're the source of your satisfaction. To get those things, you have to use people. Use the people for your satisfaction, for your prosperity. Step on people or use them as, as objects. Um, that is absolutely wrong as well. That will leave you lonely and bitter. And finally, if you're doing all this, it's because you're the center of the universe. You're worshiping yourself. This is the perfect secret, as you get to be my age and beyond, of being unhappy, And that's, ironically, that's the world's promise for happiness is actually the perfect way to be unhappy. And so the way to, and the reason that it's, you know, it's funny, you know, things like this in the world where they're just off right enough to be completely wrong. And that's a perfect case of this. So if you change the verbs and nouns a little bit, you get the formula that really does work according, really according to all the neuroscientific and social scientific research, which is use things. That's fine, but these are not the intrinsic goal. Love people, because only people are worthy of love and they can actually bring you the the, the intrinsic and and uh, and reliable satisfaction that you seek and worship the divine because your transcendental path is the only thing that will bring you the purpose and meaning that you seek. Now, maybe that's your religion, like me. I'm a traditionally religious person. Maybe it's your contemplative practice or your understanding of nature, whatever it happens to be you need to worship that thing that's not used. Use things, love people, worship the divine. Of course, the devil's in the details, which is why, you know, I have a 75,000-word book. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic, thank you so much, Arthur. So, Matt, I mean, I'd quite like to bring you in on this point, actually, because you know, you're representing here your research, of course, with the Human Flourishing Program, and in that model of flourishing, financial material stability is one of the domains, but not one of the ones that you argue from that model yeah. we pursue as an end in itself, but nonetheless important for flourishing. So, I mean, how did this this kind of, if you like, philosophy of life resonate resonate with you and your research on flourishing?
1: Thank you, John. And thank you, Arthur. I, I'm i reminded of a presentation that John Clifton gave to our Flourishing Network just last week. Um, he John is the CEO of Gallup, for those who don't know him. And Uh, He's got a book coming out called Blind Spot, and he provided a series of graphs that showed essentially material well-being going up over time, but deeper forms of thriving or flourishing going down, and that this would help account for various group-level disconnections like Brexit and other kinds of, you know, um, where groups are um, polarised against other groups. And so his argument was that we need to have a fuller appraisal of well-being and not just GDP and, you know, conventional metrics that are are measured to death, but include some of these other things that Gallup's been doing for years and certainly our program would affirm. Um as you said, John, our framework suggests that we we need to pay careful attention to financial and material stability. If you're in physical jeopardy, your ability to pursue some of the other domains of flourishing over time um, might also be jeopardized. So we, we don't ignore the material, but we don't turn it into an end in itself. So it's important to be part of the story for the um search for flourishing, but uh should not dominate the story. And as I was sharing with Arthur right before we started recording, I, I love this phrase from one of his articles: don't trade. Love for anything, and you know, in, in that article in the Atlantic, um, Arthur, you talked about how quality of life is going up, but uh, the deeper, more satisfying forms of happiness might be in jeopardy. And so, the the advice is don't trade love, and and in fact, that's what we are sort of conditioned to do. So, I think all of this is very much um, resonant with the work. That we're doing at the human flourishing program and we've seen the results of this around the globe as we've done uh, surveys with workers and we find that sometimes the most financially precarious workers have the highest self-reported scores on all of the other domains of flourishing and it's workers in the united states who have the highest level of financial material stability that often report some of the lowest scores for the other domains so it's a very timely topic and um one that uh, you know we're not suggesting uh ignore financial material stability but let's um let's rightly order our desires Mm.
2: it's a good point you know and it's the, the the thing to think about with money is you know what we find very clearly in the literature, and it's not in this particular book, it's actually, I'm working on it for my next book, which is that the, what money does is that it doesn't ever bring happiness, but it can eliminate the sources of unhappiness. This is the same thing that government policy can do. And, and so that's what one of the great big lies is, that's really one of these lies that's very close to the truth, which is why it makes it so insidious is that it's true you can feel better if you're at a very low economic level or you lack basic services to get them. But that's because it's eliminating your unhappiness, which, by the way, is being processed in the different hemisphere of the prefrontal cortex than the happy cognitions. That's so incredibly important for us to figure out. You know, we can actually eradicate a lot of sources of unhappiness that are very avoidable in our society and in our lives and our families' lives with a little bit of help, as it turns out. But you pass a certain level, and that's it. No longer will it eliminate the unhappiness, and it will never bring happiness. That's when the only thing that will abundantly bring it, uh, and reliably so, which, as you just point out, Matthew's
0: love. Excellent. Thank you very much, both of you. So, I mean, this these this discussion about happiness brings us onto a question I'd like to ask you about how you define happiness, Arthur. So, and this move is partly beyond from strength to strength to your wider works, so you argue that happiness consists of three parts, which need in balance and abundance to be truly happy. First, enjoyment in your life. Second, meaning and purpose in your life. And third, life satisfaction. And very interestingly, you note that true happiness is paradoxical in that meaning and purpose requires us to have values, and make sacrifices, which involves a degree of pain. Therefore, pursuing happiness involves some unhappiness. So could you please elaborate on your definition of happiness and what you think we can learn about this today, for example, in improving our understanding of what it means to be truly happy?
2: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I'll start with what's the biggest mistake that people make when you ask them to, to find happiness. Most people kind of, they they think they know what it is because they think of it as a feeling. And they've all, you know, everybody, even the most miserable people have felt some happiness. I mean, I'll... Um, you know, who is it, Al-Rahman, you know, the the Cordoba, the imam of Cordoba, one time he said near the end of his life, I've counted up my days of pure happiness, the the amount, they come to 14. So even the unhappiest guy, you know, who, you know, in, in our, at least our understanding of, of you know, the history of happiness would say these experience experienced some. So we all kind of know what it feels like. And so my students on the first day of class, I'll ask them, I teach a big science of happiness class at the Harvard Business School and, and I'll say, okay, what is it? And I'll cold call them. They'll be like, it's the feeling I get on Christmas morning. It's the feeling I get when my whole family's together. I say, wrong. Happiness is not a feeling anymore than, than, than your Thanksgiving dinner is the smell of the turkey. That's just evidence of Thanksgiving dinner, and and your happy feelings are evidence of the actual phenomenon. When we look at the happiest people, measure it in all sorts of ways, you know, and and there are lots of good ways to do it. There's lots of bad ways to do it, too, like the way the United Nations does, which is by comparing countries, which is a huge mistake, but that's a different issue. (laughs) Even when you measure happiness correctly, you find that the happiest people, they have an abundance of three things, kind of macronutrients, if you like, sort of the protein, carbohydrates, and fat that make up your Thanksgiving dinner. The three parts of the, the happiest people's lives are enjoyment, which is... Pleasure plus elevation, so that you're really conscious of it, and you're and, and you're and you're enjoying something in communion with other people. Um, there's satisfaction, which is the joy you get from a reward for your hard work and merit and personal responsibility, a goal met, a, a job well done. That's satisfaction. I wanted that thing, and I got it. <laughs> That's and that joy that you get, which is incredibly elusive. And finally, there's meaning and purpose. And meaning and purpose is this idea that. That, that, that my life means something, that there is something behind what I'm doing, and, and that really comes down to the, the trajectory of our lives, uh, the significance of our lives, and the coherence of our lives. You know, things happen for a reason, I'm going in a particular direction towards something and my life has you know, significance. Yeah. And, and and if you can answer those questions, fine. The trouble is, and you get to the great paradox of happiness, which is to find meaning, you got to suffer. There's nobody who said, I figured out the meaning of my life that wonderful week at the beach in Ibiza. That's not when you find the significance of your life. It's when you actually are resilient to pain, when you go through difficult times, um, when you survive something that you were really afraid of. And so that's why happiness paradoxically requires unhappiness, and people who spend their whole life trying not to be unhappy what they're accidentally doing is not being happy.
0: Yeah. Mass. I'm sure you'd love to come in on this as well, right?
1: Yeah, thank you. So Arthur, I get this question all the time because I say um, similar things about the centrality of meaning, even as it invites suffering to our deeper flourishing. And people will say, well, but doesn't the meaning have to be true in some objective sense? Like, is it enough? for me to believe that I'm president of the universe and that and I derive meaning from that and I live my life under that delusion and I suffer all the time because people push back against that assertion that I'm the president of you know the universe and um you know so how do we balance our subjective understandings of meaning with something because you 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 keep alluding to something larger than the self. So how do we um, connect that to a true story or a true narrative outside of this? Something that's, that's more objectively true because lots of mischief has been done by people who feel that life is very subjectively meaningful and they'll suffer all kinds of uh, torments to see their deluded vision realized. So I get this question all the time, um, I'm just curious how you respond to it. I, I get that
2: question all the time from atheists, of course, yeah. and you know, and 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 part of the reason I get that question is because I'm I have a you know sort of a public intellectual life, and I'm also very publicly a Roman Catholic. You know, I mean, it's literally the most important thing in my life. I go to mass every day, and people, mm-hmm. you know, I was on Sam Harris's podcast uh, last week, and and he's a super smart guy, a very soulful guy, but it's like, what gives, man? I mean, what about reality? Because for him, reality is, 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 does not include God. However, What he did acknowledge is that probably the things that we see and feel are not the only things that are there. And the reason he he would acknowledge that is because he's experimented with hallucinogenic drugs in which you actually start experiencing a reality that goes unexperienced when you actually have not been on these particular drugs. Now, which is the illusion and which is the reality? Well, that's the questions that we're all struggling with, that we're all asking. I think that most of us could agree that some people live in a delusional world, but a lot of us really are struggling to find the essence of what true reality is, and and what really the meaning question comes down to is not, is my concept of God right and your concept of God wrong? No, 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 it really comes down to whether or not we can answer two questions. I mean, the coherence, significance, and purpose of life really come down to, number one, why am I alive? And number two, for what would I be willing to die? Mm-hmm. See, that's these are these two very existential and highly metaphysical questions. And what I have found in my own research is that when, when people can't answer those questions, they don't have meaning. And when they don't have meaning, they're missing a key macronutrient of happiness, and there will be emptiness, a key hollowness mm-hmm. in their in their life. And if they can't answer that, it, it, it'll be really different than my answer. But it's really interesting, because you see this all the time. You know, I have, I have adult kids, and... And my middle son, he's, a, he's a, a sniper in the US Marine Corps. He's a special ops guy in the US Marine Corps. It's an unbelievably dangerous job. And <clears throat> when he was in high school, he kind of was casting about and uh, it was hard to find his sense of meaning. And you know, he was a Catholic kid and all that, but it wasn't the same as my life. And, and finally, when he joined the Marines after high school, he didn't go to college after high school, he was able to answer the question, what am I willing to die for? And the answer is, Matt, you. He's willing to die for you. And he's willing to die for me, and he's willing to die for John, and he's willing to die for all good people that want to be free. And, and look, there are people around the world who disagree with that. There are people who say that's really, really stupid, but it's not stupid to him, and I have seen him flourish like mm-hmm. never before because the meaning piece it came into place, like, like a piece in a puzzle came to fit. And that's actually what we, those are the two questions each of us needs to answer even if people and say we're delusional
1: it it reminds me of uh, of how victor frankl used to turn the question what is the meaning of life around to the people who would ask that and he would say well that's the question life is asking you yeah <laughs> and how do you you know what is the thing like you said that's going to draw the meaning into the core of your being so that it um it just feels effortless and and natural so uh, thank you. That's a wonderful
2: yeah. way to it. And, and for Viktor Frankl, it was trying to find the logos yes. um, of, of life, to be sure. Uh, and that is the greatest adventure. So for people who say, but I don't know what it is, like, looking for it is the adventure. Mm-hmm. And that's the fun <laughs> part, man. I mean, it's like when you know, people, I don't know which religion, go look. Get yep. out there, but get, put on your hiking boots, man, and get out into the woods of faith and, and, and do the work. And that's just so
1: fun and interesting. Well, yeah. th- this is, this is so, um, timely as well, because we've been having these conversations with groups who want to say, well, flourishing is an outcome. And then other groups will say, well, flourishing is a process. And so I'm involved in the sort of up and down, um, trajectory of, of, positive affect sometimes positive sometimes negative sometimes strong sometimes weak but i'm uh, i'm in the process of flourishing versus i i feel that i've attained flourishing and as someone who's just turned 50 this year uh i'm uh, very interested in the point that you make about how um our orientation shifts when our body starts to fail and when our mind starts to fail yeah. <laughs> and we can't we can't push um, you know in terms of frenzied activity the way we we used to our our memory is not that good anymore
2: and that's actually the basis of this second curve of strength which we were talking about before the the first curve of your natural strengths which you exhibit in your job and and in, and in your life in general <clears throat> is based on working memory and innovation and focus and you know indefatigable energy and and that tends to decline, that, that tends to decline for most people and you're starting in your early 40s, as a matter of fact, and it's really alarming and scary for a lot of people, and a, a source of regret and bitterness and anger and, and sadness and fear for a lot of people as well. But there's another curve that comes in behind it, which is the wisdom curve, You know, your ability to impart ideas to other people, to recognize patterns, to counsel and coach other people. And, yeah, your your working memory isn't as fast and your innovative capacity and energies aren't as high, but it doesn't matter because you're actually using this super strength. And when people get on that second curve of wisdom, holy moly, they're much happier. They're, they tend to be much more fulfilled than they ever have been in the past. And, you know, that's sort of the point of my recent work.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you very much, both of you. So, yeah, perhaps we should um, dig a little deeper on what you've just said there are, the, the two curves. So... The first curve is this: the curve where your crystallized intelligence, sorry, your fluid intelligence, is really at its strongest. Your ability to problem solve, have novel ideas, to innovate, and so on, and then your crystallized intelligence grows in the latter half of life. Your ability to impart wisdom, to draw connections between the things you've learned, to consolidate information, and communicate that effectively. That's is that the correct way to understand. That's me?
2: right. That's exactly right. Your first curve is kind of your things curve, and your second curve is kind of your people curve. Mm-hmm. So which is very important that you develop your people on when you're on your second curve <laughs> for, for you know and that's all the things that we're talking about with Matt, that happiness is love.
0: Absolutely. Well, I mean, I want to dig deep on, on relationships one moment. Let let me just ask you a question that I think a key question many listeners will likely wonder. You mentioned there that it's in roughly your early 40s that the second curve begins. And I think a question many listeners will wonder is when should we start preparing? You write in your book. The longer you leave it, the further down your fluid intelligence curve will will drag you, and the harder the jump will be. So, should we start preparing as early as possible from from quite early in our
2: lives? We should start thinking. And people that are that are listening to us right now or watching us right now, they should be thinking in their twenties and thirties. What would be the version of what I love and what I do that's more crystallized than fluid? Fluid is that first curve, and you know that twenty that ten thousand hours or twenty thousand hours or you know whatever that Malcolm Gladwell kinda of stuff about how to get better and better and better. That's really all, all about that first curve and, and the world tells you that you're gonna get on it and stay high and get better and it's gonna be great and then at some point you're weirdly, just mysteriously gonna become satisfied. Mm-hmm. which, of course, is a pure fiction. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's the snake oil sales job that, that, that we're getting from the world because, the, you know, and again, it's actually, when I say the world, it's not like there's some mar- marketing guy on Madison Avenue that's, you know, some evil genius rubbing his hands together and, and you know, like, ho, <laughs> ho, no. It's mother nature. It's yeah. the limbic system of our brains that are basically, that's wired into us to accumulate money, power, fame, prestige, admiration of other people, because Mother Nature does not care if we're happy. Mother Nature wants us to pass on our genes and making us incredibly fit in the mating pool. The way that we do that is by accumulating all the rewards of our our fluid intelligence. That's the reason that we have this fluid intelligence curve and it happens early in life when we're in a good reproductive age and we all this urge and we actually think somehow that we'll be happy if we do it. It's just this, it's basically a a conspiracy of mother nature of the of the limbic system of your brain distributed across digital channels in the modern economy to fool you into chasing mm-hmm. that thing all the way down the curve down the rabbit hole and all the way down to the basement where you're saying what happened man what happened mm-hmm. to my life and yep. and and you are responsible for understanding that, seeing through it, and putting together a strategy. So when you're in your 20s and 30s, and and you are going up that curve, recognize it's very important. The knowledge is power to know that I'm actually not going to be satisfied, notwithstanding what the limbic system, my brain, is telling me. And furthermore, the skills that I'm in, I'm I'm attaining and I'm getting better at clearly are not going to be here forever. What will come next? You know, and that doesn't mean you have to change careers a thousand times like me, that's crazy. That's not a normal thing to do, nor do I even recommend it. You can do a lot of different things. You can go from startup entrepreneur to venture capitalist. You can go from star litigator to, to, to managing partner of the firm. You can go from scientific researcher to master teacher. These are all, you know, all of the examples I just gave are going from one part of one industry to another part of the industry, but be ready.
0: Yeah absolutely thank you for sharing that and before I, i'd like to go into relationships as i just said then but one point i think it's important to clarify going back a step is on what you said a moment ago about in the discussion about faith and and spending time and effort focused on transcendent things this is something you emphasize in the book that we should spend intentional time as you describe on our faith either on transcendent things such as religion spirituality or metaphysical something higher if you like beyond our lives and ourselves right. And you mentioned a question you often get from atheists in the book, and then the discussion you have with Sam Harris that, you know, what if you're not religious? Can you get that then? And I was quite taken by the point you made in the book that you can gain the benefits from having an interest in philosophy, that something transcendental can come from that, such as the growing interest today in Stoicism. So could you elaborate a little more on how we can cultivate a focus on something higher, be it non-religious as well as religious.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm persuaded that, that Sam Harris has every bit as much happiness from the transcendental that I have as a Christian. Um, now, that's not to, to adjudicate the answer to the question, who's right, Sam or Arthur? I have enormous respect for Sam Harris, and, and I can't vouch for the, I can tell you what I believe, but I have no empirical evidence that mm-hmm. I'm necessarily right, nor that he is, for that matter. But what I can tell you empirically is that there are all sorts of ways to get the happiness from a transcendental experience. And what it requires is this, get get backing up from the quotidian details of life. See, if we're left to our desires, once again, if we're left to our natural inclinations, you know your brain will focus you intensively on your day-to-day existence which is unbelievably tedious john's mm. job john's commute john's friends john's money john's lunch it's so it's like watching the same episode of of breaking bad over and over again <laughs> compulsively and involuntarily and after a, after a while you can't you can't stand it anymore even though you can't stop and the only way is not to go deeper and deeper into it, but it's to back up, it's yes. to back up. You know, our life naturally is a, is a pointillistic painting. And you have seen a Syrah point, a painting or what it is, it's a, it's a bunch of dots and you can't actually see a pointillistic painting until you back up a lot. If you're up next to it, it's like dots and that's your life is, and, and what a transcendental walk does, whether it's a study of the stoic philosophers, which is what it is, the big questions. Or whether it's getting serious about a contemplative meditation practice or a walk in nature practice or getting serious about something that's aesthetically bigger than we are, Uh, trying to really understand the works of Johann Sebastian Bach. Or whether it's studying the religion, going back to the religion of your youth um, all of these things, what they do is they, they, they let you. It's like, finally, somebody gave me perspective and peace. Finally, somebody let me back up. And that's where the benefit comes from.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much. Right. So let's dig into deep to uh, relationships because I would love to explore that. That's I love your focus on the importance of building close relationships in from strength to strength and your arguments about what kinds of relationship we should focus on and how to best do this. And you discuss research that suggests the most important thing for health and well-being is relationship satisfaction. And you describe several relationship types that are particularly important to cultivate. So sense. what kinds of relationships should we concentrate on cultivating? And how should we do this? Yeah, so that's... it's. <laughs>
2: this all comes down to what all the research says. And I'm sure that Matt's data are saying the same thing as well. Ask him to weigh in on this in a second. But I look at, the, for example, the research from the Harvard Study of Adult Development that Matt and I have used intensively as being, you know, as we like to say in the business, Harvard men. And and I was like,
1: are you a Harvard man anymore technically, Matt? Well, sort of. (laughs) I'm, I'm, uh, I've got this hybrid position now. Yeah, so yes, I've, Baylor, got, yeah. I've got one foot still at Harvard.
2: <laughs> it's pretty sweet being a Baylor man too. I, I'm, I'm a you know, Bears fan. <laughs> anyway, so, but the point of the Harvard Study Development it looks over 84 years of longitudinal data, it's like a crystal ball into people's lives because it starts looking at people when they were in their teens and goes all the way until they die. And it says, what do young people and, and middle-aged people do that predicts them being happy and healthy when they're old? And it's like all kinds of stuff. Like, you know, duh, don't drink to excess and take care of your body and and, and, and make sure that you take care of mental health problems and obvious stuff. But the biggie, I mean, it's like the guy who ran the study is a guy named George Valiant at the Harvard Medical School for a long time. And, and he said he could he could spell it out, the whole study in five words. Happiness is love, full stop. <laughs> That's really critically important, okay? There are lots and lots of ways to love. You know, the, the problem with English uh, is that we have one word for it. You know, I, at home I speak Spanish and the nice thing is we have two words for it. Well, in, in, in Greek, where you are, you're in Greece right now, but in ancient Greek at least, there were something like 11 words for love. And and it's very important. You need them all. And you need them all in different levels at different times with different people. In a full life, if you just really want to know the context of a good life, it's like understand the smorgasbord of types of love and get them, practice them, and apply them liberally. That's what it comes down to. Whether it's philia, which is love of friends, eros, which is the love of your partner, your mate, uh, agape, which is the refracted love of the divine, you know, what it comes down to for me is is most great relationships that bring real satisfaction are, are based on, you know, what in English we would think of as deep friendship. Um, you know, and that's that's an Aristotelian concept where where he would talk about the perfect friendships, the virtuous friendships that are just useless. You know, they're just cosmically useless, they're not useful. And and so I make the distinction in my book about deal friends and real friends. What I find for people that are my age who are, are, are very unhappy is they're almost always successful and lonely. And, and they're, they're lonely because they, they have tons of people around them, but they have a lot of deal friends, but no real friends. And you don't yeah. need Aristotle to tell you the difference between that. I mean, every, any fool can, can, can help you sort it out. You just got to have the, the language around it. So yeah. real friendship is the basis of good marriages. Real friendships are the basis of actually having people that, that you can count on and will take your 2 a.m. phone call. Um, and, and that's really what it comes down to is real friendship. And this is what you call
0: companionate love. Right. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So friend, love that's romantic. If, if I understood this correctly, it's, it's romantic love that's roots are in deep friendship. That's right. And
2: that's, that's what all successful marriages have in common. I mean, you can fight like cats and dogs. You can even be, it can go so far as like me to be married to a Spaniard. I mean, good luck to you is all I can say. But if it's companionate, if it, there's, it's based on deep friendship, you can be daggers drawn for Sixty years, yeah and that's really the basis of what the relationship is all about. You find that failed marriages, they start off with very passionate love. And by the fifth year, you don't have this deep friendship of companionate love and 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 that's that's actually why they fail because they have a hollowness to the relationship. Matt, you got to weigh in on this because I know you've thought about this a lot. <laughs> yeah,
0: that Matt, Matt is Matt's a uh, an excellent writer on love and has a huge interest in love and connection with flourishes. Well, so Matt, please do.
1: Thank you. I, I know we're almost out of time, so I, I won't go on at length. But, you know, there there also is this um, important conversation about the right ordering of loves. And so it's, it's all of the expressions of love and types of love can be very healthy. But, um, you know, C.S. Lewis years ago wrote this book on the four loves. And he said that the problem with some of the lower forms of love is they tend to go bad on us. Mm -hmm. If you turn those into gods, they become demons. And so um, this, Arthur, as you were saying, the refracted love of the divine is sort of the purifying force or, you know, potentially the purifying force here. And so what, you know, where do we find narratives that can show us what self, you know, truly healthy, self-giving love is like Um, if we're not seeing it in our own relationships and we're not modeling it? So how do we Look beyond the local and see someone else who has modeled rightly ordered relationships. And and then a you know a conversation that's been coming up with increasing urgency is how do we love the created world and not just seek our own sort of interpersonal um, satisfaction through our loving relationships, but how do we? Can- I've been in conversation with the good folks at the Fetzer Institute, and they like to talk about the fourfold community of being. So we we love our deepest, best self. We love others. We love the created world, and we love the sacred or the divine. And if we think about those um, four relationships, levels of relationships, uh, as being in harmony in some way, then, um, you know, we might be able to attend to all of them at the same time. And, that, and that's, you know, a kind of shared flourishing that Um, transcends my own individual satisfaction. And I I love that you brought up the Harvard grant study, and I had a conversation with George Valiant about this years ago, and more recently with the current director, Bob Waldinger. And and it is very clear that we must, um, at at the cost of our own lives, we must prioritize human relationships. Um, But there are other relationships as well that um, allow us to express love in ways that are not extractive in the world, but regenerative. So right. anyway, that in a couple of minutes, that's that's what I will will offer. But we can do another podcast. No, and Matt, I mean, what you're
2: bringing up is really important because exactly. remember, part of the formula is love people, don't use people. Extractive love is using people. You know, this right. is the key thing in any of your relationships. Ask yourself, am I am I using that person? And I get it, you can both, you can mutually benefit from a transactional relationship. There's nothing wrong with deal friends, but the, the real point is that when you use, you're not actually in transaction. You are extractive in this particular way. And nothing good comes from that. That's why you're right, C.S. Lewis
0: says they tend to tend to go bad on us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, both of you. So for our final question today, Arthur. There are many important points of practical advice in your book, several of which directly connect to human flourishing. So to pick a few more examples, in addition to all those you've outlined today, we should focus on cultivating our crystallized intelligence in the latter half of life. We should schedule meditation, prayer, reading, and spiritual practice every day. We should go on gratitude walks where we focus on the positive events in our lives while walking. And the advice you receive from the Indian guru, Acharya, to know yourself by going within. Connectedly, we like to ask our um our interviewees, the flourishing question. If you had to take all your knowledge and wisdom and pick out one thing for our listeners to do to help themselves flourish, what would it be? Hmm.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it, I'm afraid that there's been a spoiler already because we've already given the formula in this, which is it's really, get, it's, get, it's going to have to come down to love. And so I would recommend that everybody take an inventory of the relationships in their lives and to to make sure that there are sufficient real relationships, that really there are real friends as opposed to deal friends, including the people who are closest to you, including people in your family, if they could fall into that particular category. There are differences, of course, in your marriage and your friends, or your adult children and your friends, however it happens to work. But that's the key thing, your happiness is love. Do you have enough love in your life, real love? If you don't, it's time to get after that. You will not get love from your car. You will not get love from a boat. Um, I could go on and on. You will not get love from a bigger paycheck. You will only get love from the other humans and only and, and and many of us would would recognize that that love actually comes from a refraction from the divine love which comes from above. You got to figure that one out for yourself as well. So make sure that your love relationships are on point. There is no
0: other way. Fantastic. Thank you so much Arthur. That's a wonderful way to finish this fascinating and extremely rewarding conversation. I've learned a huge amount. I hope our listeners have enjoyed this. I have no doubt they have. Thank you Matt for joining us today to interview Arthur with me Thank and you. I'm very much looking forward to your, to your next book Arthur um what, nice. what is your next book if you can reveal that yet and and when are you when are you due to publish that
2: yeah, yeah, it's a it's it's a good question, and my editor at Penguin very much wants the answer to that question as well. Um, but my, it will almost certainly be published in the middle of 2024. I'm working on it right now. It's a, based on my column in the Atlantic called "How to Build a Life," and it's much more for people in their 20s and 30s what are the best practices for starting out? What is the foundation that you can actually do as a a young adult? And it's based on, largely on, on, as I said, my call in the Atlantic, but also my class at at the Harvard Business School, where 20-somethings are really starting out in their life. So I'm gonna talk about your head, how to manage your emotions so they don't manage you, your heart, to get your relationships on point, much about, like as we've discussed today, your soul, your body. And also your pocketbook, your wallet, you know, how, what should be your relationship to money going in? So this is a how-to guide on how to build your life for, you know, all the young folks that are looking at older people and saying, I sure would like to not turn out like that.
0: Wow. Okay. So it follows on quite nicely from, from strength to strength, yeah. and, uh, focusing on yeah. the first, first quarter of life, even. As exactly. opposed to the latter half. Fantastic. Yeah. And we can find out everything about your work at arthurbrooks.com, right? Exactly right. Everything's there. Thanks. I can't wait to read your next book. Sounds fascinating. Thank you again for today. Thank you. Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, please share it with friends, family,
2: colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Uh, You can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, We've got our own YouTube channel and you can check out our website at flourishfnpodcast.com.
0: We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback on that. So your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today and keep putting in the work.